0: Welcome to the 435th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome long COVID patient and advocate, Charlie McCone. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch, and you can also watch it live on Twitter. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word. And as always, please feel free to send suggestions or suggest yourself as a future guest. Just a reminder, we are aiming to the two year mark on March 16th for COVID calls. And at that point, we will have done 500 episodes of COVID calls. I'm still looking for guests leading up to that point. And so if you have research related to COVID, if you have art related to COVID, or you know somebody whose voice you think should be part of this archive of our time, please do get in touch with me by email or on Twitter, direct message is fine. As of February 25th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the United States reports 946,823 deaths from COVID. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Another Casualty of Russia's Invasion, Ukraine's Ability to Contain the Coronavirus. This appeared February 24, 2022 in the New York Times by Adil Hassan. While Ukraine is under attack by Russia, Ukraine's civilian population is also under siege from the coronavirus, a situation only likely to worsen. The fighting in Ukraine's east is forcing a mass migration to the west that is crowding mass transit centers and trains and jamming roads. Video images of the large numbers of Ukrainians on the move show understandably few signs of face coverings, even as the country is just getting past a record high point in its infection rate. The coronavirus outlook for those fleeing the fighting is grim, according to Dr. Eric S. Toner a senior scholar at the Center for Health Security at the Bloomberg School of Public Health of Johns Hopkins University. They're quite vulnerable. And as people huddle together, either sheltering or evacuating in crowded buses, trains, and cars, maybe in hotels and refugee camps, it's going to cause a reversal of the progress, he said in an interview on Thursday. They can't maintain distance and they don't have access to masks. Many people are heading to smaller towns or villages or crossing the border into Poland, Hungary, Slovakia and Romania. And the flow of refugees will likely affect those countries' pandemic situations too. Senior Biden administration officials say that between 1 million and 5 million people in Ukraine could seek safety in some other part of the country or in neighboring countries. On Thursday, the United Nations High Commission for Refugees said that it was already increasing its operations in Ukraine and neighboring countries. Dr. Toner said that he expected Ukraine's neighbors to see a rise in their COVID case numbers and additional stress on their health care systems from refugees, but those problems will be worse inside Ukraine. They're going to be caring for COVID patients along with war victims, he said. They're going to be understaffed because of the war, and it's going to harm their chances of keeping patients in isolation or have social distancing. It's going to be a mess. Ukraine is reporting an average of about 26,000 new cases a day, or 63 cases per 100,000 people, according to the R World in Data project at the University of Oxford. Only about one-third of Ukraine's 44 million people are fully inoculated against the coronavirus, though Ukrainian officials said this month that the army had a 99% vaccination rate. Russia despite being one of the first countries to develop and approve a coronavirus vaccine, has fully vaccinated only half of its population, according to our world and data. It is also dealing with an Omicron surge, recording an average of 160,000 new cases over the last seven days. That's 111 cases per 100,000 people. Ukraine does not recognize Russia's Sputnik V vaccine, while Russia does not recognize the Western manufactured vaccines administered in Ukraine. The Russian invasion is also likely to hurt Ukraine's ability to track the virus, Dr. Toner said. If the country's data becomes unreliable, that would be a particularly important loss for epidemiologists because the country is in the heart of Eastern Europe. I would suspect that we're going to stop getting a lot of data from Ukraine, Dr. Toner said. The hospitals and local health departments are not going to have that as a priority. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm very happy to welcome my guest, Charlie McCone. Let me introduce you to him. Charlie McCone is a 32-year-old long COVID patient and advocate based in San Francisco, who was struck with a quote-unquote mild case of the virus in March, 2020, and has suffered severe debilitating symptoms ongoing for two years now. Prior to illness, he was in the prime of his life with no health issues to speak of. He was an active tennis player, cyclist, and musician, who biked ten miles a day and ran ten miles a week and worked full time as a nonprofit professional. He's currently on short term disability, is severely housebound, and relies on his long term partner as a full time caretaker. And like many long COVID patients, he has seen over fifty doctors and healthcare providers since his illness. Many of long COVID, many of his long COVID symptoms remain unexplained and untreated. Charlie McCollum, thank you for making time to join me on COVID calls today
1: thank you scott thanks for having me and uh thanks for uh taking the time to shine a light on this what is really an overlooked issue of this pandemic
0: i'd like to start the way i usually do find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there
1: yeah um i'm actually calling from napa california currently uh usually based in san francisco but up here just for a little bit to be a little bit closer to friends and family and in terms of the pandemic situation you know it seems like cases are going down. Um, you know, it seems like things uh, people are eager to kind of get back to, uh, you know, less restrictions and and things of that nature. Um, but it still seems kind of like everybody's holding their breath on what the BA two variant is going to look like and what's going to be, you know, the effects of of these um,
0: <clears throat> of lessening the restrictions. So, I've been asking guests to share a personal memory of this COVID time, and, and we're going to talk about your uh, COVID case in March of 2020, but there may be other memories that you want to talk about as well. So let me open that up to you. You know, what do you associate um, in terms of when you think about this last two years? What are your strongest associations? I mean, I
1: turned 30 um, in, in uh, January 2020, um, you know, and I got sick. March uh, March of that year and I've been sick ever since. So I've been dealing with long COVID, been severely disabled for my entire thirties. And it feels like, you know, I've fell into the rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland or stuck in the twilight zone. And I'm still kind of, uh, you know, and I'm, it's becoming an un, it's becoming a crowded place as well. And we're all in here trying to kind of figure out how to get out. And um, of course That's what I associate, you know, the most with this pandemic. It's been, um, I feel, you know, bizarre for everybody, difficult for everybody. But in terms of our, uh, you know, physical, you know, lived experience, it's definitely been an out-of-body experience this entire time.
0: You described your COVID case as a a quote-unquote mild case. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about your experience of COVID, particularly it was early in the pandemic? Yeah. So,
1: I mean, I... I got sick or I first had symptoms on the first day of lockdown, which was very eerie. I remember I was running to the beach and back, which was my kind of uh, bi-weekly three-mile run. And I was running back and I was like, whoa, there's people lining up outside the grocery store. This is really happening. I guess this is the lockdown happening. And I got back that night and then I started noticing a pressure in my chest for the first time really in my life. I was like, that's odd. And then the next day I just started to feel you know, really achy, you know, you know, kind of general malaise. And then by the end of that day, for the first time in my life, I was short of breath. And um, and I was like, oh, no. And I called the called the doctor and they say, yeah, it sounds like you have a viral respiratory infection. We're going to presume it's COVID, but we can't test you right now because um, we're only testing people who are severe cases or have known contact, etc. Let's, you know, just hang tight. By the end of that weekend, I was completely bed bound. I couldn't get out of bed. And I was severely short of breath. And I was like that for the next week or so. For two weeks, uh, severely short of breath, bed bound. We called the ER multiple times and they said, look, you can talk. You know, we can't see you. I think in the spectrum of mild to severe, that was probably more moderate. You know, it was not mild. Right now, if you're short of breath, they're not considering that a mild case. But it's still, quote unquote, a mild case. I wasn't hospitalized. Didn't need to be hospitalized. did I suffer from a lack of treatment early on? Not clear. Um, and by the third week, started to feel like I was kind of getting better. And then by the fourth week, end of the fourth week, I was like, hey, I think I'm, I'm getting over this. Uh, you know, I, I had very little symptoms. So I went and got on my bike, tried to go grab some tacos, got back and all of a sudden, boom. You know, that was hmm. the first wave of the first relapse of, that was the first time I exerted myself. And um, every, all the symptoms came back with, with a vengeance mm-hmm. and was completely out for the next week. And that cycle was the beginning of my long COVID journey. And it has resembled that nature ever since. And then uh, at the two month mark, I, you know, kind of pulling out my hair, like, am I going, do I have some weird disease? Uh, do I have cancer is what, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And then I, you know, kind of jumped online and found this group and they were just, hundreds and hundreds of posts of other people saying, Hey, I'm still sick. I have no health issues. What's going on? I was like, Oh my God, there's this thing. And, and then, uh, uh, the the second mark I started developing new weird symptoms. You know, this Mm -hmm. is two months after the infection. I started having full body muscle twitching in my leg, on my back. I, you know, you know, when you get like an eye twitch from too much caffeine or sometimes it was like that, but happening everywhere in my body. It never happened before, and that has never gone away. But uh, it's something that came. And then at the third month mark, I was noticed one day I was walking into the kitchen and again. Feel like I'm getting better. I noticed my heart rate was 150, and by the end of that day, I had severe left chest pain. And uh, after uh, you know going to the doctor's bag, like something's weird, and they thought I had myocarditis develop at that point. It was uh, eventually the diagnosis was reversed, but it, it was kind of initial signs of that. And I was diagnosed with what is now a common complication with long COVID patients, which is POTS, which is a form of, uh, it's an autonomic dysfunction categorized as a form of dysautonomia where basically whenever you stand up, your heart rate is, is but uh, the circulation is where your heart rate jumps up to 150, you hear that a lot with long COVID yeah. patients of uh you know, the the autonomic nervous system, circulatory system, just being completely out of whack. So all of that to say is that it has been this barrage of waxing and waning symptoms that have been uh, relentless. Mm. And I, you know, tried to work through them, uh, you know, the first year, year and a half. And by the last summer, I ended up just collapsing. You know, I couldn't do it anymore. And, uh, and I, that's my biggest regret is just trying to push through my symptoms, not understanding kind of the nature Mm. of the disease at that point, or the nature of post-viral diseases at that point as well. And um, eventually after my second attempt got on short-term disability with a new doctor last year and um, we've um, been, uh, you know, trying to get a management and plan in place. I was unfortunately reinfected last September, which led to pneumonia and a big deterioration of of oh. and This is another unfortunate you know common story is that patients are finally maybe getting they're not recovering, but maybe they're getting to seventy percent right and and then they get hit again with with the virus. I was vaccinated, many people are saying and they're and they're kind of starting at the bottom of the ditch or the bottom of of the hill again
0: mm.
1: and trying to work their way back up so that is kind of um I guess. Uh, the the short version of the story. And um, it's been, uh, you know, again, it's, it's, I'm at this point just completely uh, debilitated. I have to, for this meeting alone, I had to kind of plan it as the main thing I did today. I had to plan it as one of the main three things I was going to do this week. I have to rest for multiple hours leading up anything to this. I have to rest for multiple hours after something like this. And so it can be hard looking at somebody like me talking look like I probably haven't shaved in a while at least but look like he looks okay. It's really it's hard to really digest uh yeah. the the severity of the illness that uh people with this condition are going through and we've been trying I think hard for the past 2 years as a patient community to warn the public like look this is a disaster at the rates at which this is happening this is going to be Uh, the biggest mass disabling event in history and we're still just completely perplexed why there isn't a public health warning why aren't we tracking these cases and the research is not anywhere near proportion proportionate to which uh this is happening and from our perspective it's like look the more cases the better off we're probably going to be you know because that's going to eventually lead to some sort of treatment but it's still just traumatizing you know, we're seeing the biggest influx of long COVID patients from the Omicron wave in our patient communities now. Right. People are saying, Hey, I got sick. Is this, what's this long COVID thing? I didn't know anything about this. I'm still sick eight weeks later. And for the first time, I now have somebody in every single one of my personal uh, network social groups who knows somebody who's dealing really? with it. Mm. And so, where before I knew only one of two people in my personal network. And I feel like that kind of was, uh, why people didn't take it as seriously because yeah. they were, well, if it was so common you know we would we would hear more about it um where well, now people are hearing about it and it's uh it's scary because uh with everything i've gone through i have finally found a great team of doctors who under who understand everything up to the uh, uh you know the cutting end research mm-hmm. still having a really difficult time understanding what to do so many people in the healthcare system are just at a loss of of how to manage this right now.
0: Well, thank you for going through that and and explaining the various different details of it and I'm I'm really sorry for what you've gone through. I mean, thank I, you. Thank you. I just want to say that. I mean, yeah. I, and I've talked with lots of long covid patients on covid calls and um every story is a little different. Yeah. But one of the things in in common um is the anxiety that sort of rises to the surface as the different waves you described as sort of series of you know progress and setback and progress and setback and so I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that too because it's not just the anxiety of um, being sick it's the mm-hmm. anxiety of anticipation of being sick oh, yeah. and then also not having medical I mean medical Lack of understanding there, and then lack of society, as you point out. You know, you open the news; it's everything COVID, but nothing long COVID in that first year. How have you managed the anxiety of all of this, Charlie? I mean, that's a
1: good point, and I and I think any long COVID patient may tell you that the the one of the hardest, if not the hardest, thing about the disease is having, say, a, a couple of good days, maybe a couple of good weeks, um, and then the relapse, and you're just like. No, you know, like, I really thought this, this might be me turning some type of corner. And I think that part of it mentally is just the most devastating part is that you feel like you're, 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 you're figuring out this, you feel like this is a Rolodex. You feel like you have a good uh, system now in place, but you never really trust the ground under your feet. Um, And you, you know, people, some people are getting better too. So it's not like it's completely hopeless. You're stuck in this, like, well, some people are getting better. They tried this you know, there's got to be a way out for me here. So we are all still stuck in this, like, um, there's a solution, but, you know, how far and how hard is it going to be still feels very elusive. And so all of us are still, uh, you know, fighting, trying to fight our way out. And so when we have that relapse, it's really difficult. I'd say after the first, you know, the first year is just pure, you know, emergency, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just, Like, what's going on? You know, every, you feel like every month, you know, is around the corner. You should get better. So it's just everything's an emergency. The second year, you know, and this is how other post viral patients have explained it too. It's just kind of just abject misery. You know, you're just like, this has been a year. I'm not getting better. You know, this is really devastating. After that, you think, you know, you're kind of like, okay, I'm here. This is devastating. But you kind of, compartmentalize that at that point. It's like, okay, this is not the quality of life I'm willing to accept for myself. uh, But I have to kind of compartmentalize that kicking and screaming isn't helping anymore. Mm. What do I need to do to both make my days, you know, more uh, bearable and manageable? And what do I need to do to kind of keep my eye on the ball and feeling optimistic about like, what am I doing to put one foot in front of the other to try the next thing? And so I think at a certain point, you know, you just try to I've been just trying to orientate my days around what can I do to minimize my symptoms and maximize my joy despite this um you know incredibly difficult uh experience and it at and to kind of minimize uh the mental stress which is only exacerbates symptoms. And so it's a little bit of a, you know, Chinese finger trap or like you're in quicksand. is like the harder you push, the harder you kick and scream, the faster you sink. And you kind of learn that after two years. But um, that that's kind of my long winded stay of it still remains incredibly difficult, incredibly devastating for, for me my friends, family, you know, um, losing kind of, you know, not being able to read when I want to, not want to listen to music mm-hmm. when I want to. Not be able to eat the foods I want to, not be able to have coffee, not be able to have this. It all sucks. But right. at a certain point, you're, you, you, you mentally adapt to like, what do I need to do to just have my days to be more bearable? And also, what, what do I need to do to get a plan in place that makes me kind of stay in the fight?
0: So I just want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID calls today. I'm talking with long COVID patient, Charlie McCone about his experience of living with long COVID and Charlie, you have also um, that of the energy that you have, you've apportioned part of that to public outreach, which I think is uh, really uh, impressed that you've made time to do that. And uh, the San Francisco Chronicle, profiled you, and there was a a statement in there which really stuck out to me. I'm just going to read it. In the piece, you said, I don't think the public is well-informed around this possible outcome from COVID. And I think if they were, younger folks might exercise more caution and prudence. This is just not being well-articulated enough. I wanted to follow up with you on that a little bit because you know, there's an unfortunate series of unfortunate discourses around COVID from the beginning that have sought to minimize it. Sure. Minimize it for young children, um, you know, minimize the Omicron variant. At various moments, there seem to always be people there saying it's not so bad. And I, I thought I was really, you know, moved by that statement of yours because it particularly, I think, for people who are, you know, in their 20s, 30s, 40s, healthy. This has generally been treated um as something that you will have and get over and then you move on with your life and you have a different story to tell.
1: Yeah, I have a very different story to tell. And again, if this was just me and one or two other people, you know, then I think I'd be like, yeah, I got unlucky, some weird thing happening. But now we know how often this is happening. We know severely disabling this is happening. You know, there's now an 81 uh, study meta analysis showing that it's 10 to 30% of people are becoming this sick, uh, and we know that over half of them definitely are still sick after a year. And, you know, there's a there's ver- variety of estimates. You know, the Mayo Clinic said, yeah, we're seeing estimates from 10 to 50 percent. And we're not sure what the exact numbers. What we know for sure is that this condition is not rare. Right. And so that is the alarming part of it. So part of, you know, I think the patient community and myself, the reason we are trying to talk about this is one, just a sense of urgency. That's like, why isn't the CDC, why isn't? Um, why aren't folks being adequately warned about the risk of infection? Uh, you know, it could be described as misinformation um, that I would say isn't that much different than the misinformation that anti-vaxxers are trying to prescribe about the risk of vaccination. We are not giving people the total information about the risk of infection. And it is an alarming number. It is not rare. Rare is something that happens in medical terms, one, in one in ten thousand or a thousand people, this is happening. In the most conservative estimates, people are debilitated for at least three months. To one in ten folks, and we have yet to see studies that um, have proved otherwise. There is some encouraging information about the vaccine um, reducing that number by half. But then we're looking at five to fifteen percent instead of ten to thirty percent. Still not rare. Still very common. And so. Uh, one of the biggest uh, gripes um, and failures, I think, is one we're not warning the public still, and this is very clear by all the folks who just got sick with Omicron, and we now know that there's more deaths now from Omicron from than Delta. So, speaking, we're going to see more morbidity um, in, in Omicron as well. So, uh, and all of these folks are saying, "I didn't know this could happen. I was vaccinated. I was boosted." What's going on? And that's, uh, that's, a, that's a failure of, of, of public health who knew how, uh, severe this is, how common it is, and still not warning the public. Now, why that is, everybody can speculate, but it, it'd be very hard, I think, for public health agencies to say this is a mild variant. Uh, hospitalizations are decreasing. We can open things up again while simultaneously saying, but one in 10 of every people who get sick are going to be indefinitely disabled. Uh, And so I think that's the clear dilemma, right, is what 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 costs, you know, are we going to just accept as as a society? And um, it seems like long COVID is that cost that we're willing to accept right now, which is terrifying to me. And um, I do think that if people there was a study from Forbes Hmm. that showed uh, folks who were well informed on long COVID, were more likely to get vaccinated, and then the folks who were unvaccinated once they learned about long COVID, forty percent of them were then willing to more willing to consider the vaccination. So there, there are studies saying that yes, if you inform people about the risk, they're going to take that risk into consideration. And uh, may, everybody may not uh, believe it. Everybody may not um, think that's going to happen to them. And you know, we know there is a lot of uh, internalized you know, ableism and things like that. But there's going to be people who do respond and say, "Hey, I know somebody, I know Charlie, and I don't want that to happen to me. So yes, if this is happening this often, you know, we need to know about it.
0: It it occurs to me that, you know, uh, if you look at the way that public health information is distributed around smoking or around, um, you know, high fat diet, you know I mean, we really in the in the last decade, certainly in my lifetime, the idea that you could talk in meaningful and effective ways to people about chronic disease it's it's out there it's public health researchers and and communicators know what they're doing, but the political winds here have been blowing so strong to get get over it, get past it. Um, Or just outright deny it in the Trump administration, but even in the Biden administration, to get to some point in which they can say, "Well, this is behind us now," that it that it has not left space for the kind of communication that you're calling for.
1: Yes, yeah, I think that's right, and I think it's also on you know the the uh, the medical community does not have a great track record with post viral illness in general, right? We know that there are other post viral conditions. This isn't the we know pandemics disable people. You know, we know there was. Uh, people didn't want to get polio because they want to get post-polio syndrome. We know after the influenza there was, and um, you know the weird neurological situations again. And we know, of course, about myalgic encephalitis and dysautonomia, chronic Lyme. Medical communities have a good track record of both studying these conditions, treating these conditions, or taking them seriously. Now, let's say in an alternate universe, those things were well taken seriously. Maybe. Long COVID would be easier for the medical community to to digest, to swallow, and incorporate into public health messaging. And if they had a solution, too, you know, right, uh, I think it'd be easier for people to digest. The, the fact is, it's the sheer number of folks who are coming down with this is just confronting a major blind spot in medicine that uh, nobody uh, was prepared for and is ready for. And it may take now uh, unfortunately, at the rate things are going, years until they have a solution for it. And so it does seem like they aren't people aren't going to be eager to talk about this until there's a solution to it. Mm. However, I think now you're seeing in, in the past few months, this has been on the front page of The Washington Post. This has been on the front page of The New York Times. And I think it's because their staff are now getting disabled and they're writing these stories. This from Rolling Stone. Or the first two years, it was still treated with skepticism and it was page seven and et cetera and so forth. But now I'm like, who wrote this article? And I'm like, oh, it was from a long COVID patient. No wonder it was so good. And so now these media institutions are saying, yeah, we got to figure this out here because, you know, our some of our best, most productive employees are not getting back to work. They've been sick for a year. And so the I think in the past six months, we're seeing the snowball start to roll a little bit faster gain a little bit more momentum but still not anywhere near the pace in which it needs to to deal with the problem at hand there you know for instance last summer they 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 found what i still and a lot of folks believe is the most promising biomarker to date for long covid and they found in south africa uh over one one uh, 70 out of 70 patients they studied had amyloid micro clots in their blood uh detected um in that that you that would otherwise other coagulation and blood markers were completely normal and they and they responded all to anticoagulant therapy. And so I'm like, okay, great. You know, maybe by the end of the year there's going to be a treatment here. That study has still yet to be replicated. Why? You know, I can understand we don't have a you know, we don't have a solution, we're struggling with public health messaging, but why isn't the medical community in and saying Let's let's replicate that. That's an easy thing to find. It's an easy thing to treat. Uh, why is that still taking so long? That, I think, is one of the most frustrating parts for long COVID patients right now is that there is now, there's hundreds of papers that are describing this is a clear, mm-hmm. uh, there's great consensus that this is a vascular phenomenon, and there are one to two to three to maybe four culprits driving it that we need to get to the bottom of. However, there's more than enough information right now to start moving the ball on small clinical trials on, on replicating research. And none of that is happening. It's these long multi-year observational studies from big three letter uh, health institutions. And mm. that is business as usual. This isn't business as usual. You know, this is a mass disabling event for 10 to 30% of folks are coming down with this condition. And so that's where I'm just truly confused. Like, is there, I can understand it. There being political reasons of not being uh, adequately warned, which is deeply unethical. And, you know, I think in most, a lot of people's mind, but why isn't the medical community trying to catch up to speed to Mm. to make it more politically palatable? Because this is, I've seen 55 doctors. I don't want to know how much that has costed, you know, the healthcare, uh, you know, uh, industry, the insurance industry. It's cost me a lot of money and that's the story for a lot of folks. This is not cost efficient. It just doesn't make any sense from any perspective, an economic perspective, a moral perspective, a social perspective. So that's where I'm like genuinely confused. Are they just not, are there some people not aware, you know, who are in these important power uh, position? But then again, Dr. Fauci has acknowledged it. He says this, you know, he knows how serious this is. So again, mm-hmm. that's where there is, I think, just there's a disconnect somewhere. And it's not exactly clear to me why I'm not super still familiar with the intricacies of the uh, pharmaceutical, you know, clinical trial, public health, complex, uh, and and all of that. I do right. know that one of the biggest gripes is, you know, for, for, to take something from clinical to bedside is usually seventeen years. I know that's uh, that's not going to work uh, for this. So that's where I think a lot of people feel frustrated right now. Is there's so much promising information uh, about what's going on with this? this disease. Why aren't we building off of that and trying to replicate that as fast as possible?
0: Well, it's also to hear, you know, you describe that number uh, from clinical to bedside in 17 years, but of course, we've just lived through a time in which an mRNA vaccine by multiple companies was developed in uh, in a year um, for a new disease. And they, and they have the
1: technology within a few months.
0: So, you know, when the urgency is there, the, you know, the biomedical uh, capacity is immense, staggering. I wanted to ask you about another. Um, let me just remind folks you're listening to COVID calls. I'm talking to Charlie McCone today about long COVID. I wanted to follow up another part of this, Charlie, which has to do with sort of your education through this, yeah. Um, as a patient advocate and as a, a member of a of a community, and I've talked with, for example, Dr. Marjorie Roberts, who's a long COVID yeah. patient and advocate, and you know to hear her talk about how you build a community, sort of person by person, through this. Is really impressive but also frankly sounds pretty exhausting
1: um yeah i mean i think a lot of folks would would say it's it um at least from you know the patient um uh, community side it's been one of the few i'd say soulless is though is is knowing other people Mm -hmm. who are going through this knowing uh you're not alone people have very similar stories to you um knowing some people are getting better and, and you know with maybe the right luck and treatment and time you, you will too um, I'd say being able to connect with, with with folks is what keeps a lot of people going and if they were completely alone um, and there wasn't you know the internet for this I would be very concerned about the rates of of self-harm uh, expediting which we within the community is is unfortunately you know, happening and and beginning to happen more. And we're very concerned about that, but being able to connect with each other has been a huge uh, sanity uh, relief. You know, it, people really struggle with understanding what you're going through. Uh, My, my girlfriend does, my mom does, my dad does, they believe me, my my work does, They believe, but they still struggle with like, how are you feeling good this morning, but not now, you know, why are you feeling good tonight? But a few hours ago before dinner, you weren't. And so, it's really difficult to understand and be able to share that experience with other people and it be, you know, so uncannily similar has been like, okay, there's power in numbers here at some point. And, and it keeps us all, I think, you know, mentally in, in the fight. Otherwise I think the hopelessness despair would be, would be greater in terms of the advocacy part of it and building it patient by patient. Um, You know, I'm not involved with a specific, uh, you know, group like Body Politic or Survivor. Of mm-hmm. course, I'm friend I'm I'm now friends with with all of these folks. And, you know, I think the fact that this has been a patient-led um you know, condition and disease has been real very powerful um in both helping folks become aware of this. Um and I think, you know, I think with any advocacy, you know, realm, there's gonna be a few you know, moments of tension or bumps in the road of people having different ideas of priorities or different strategies about to accomplish those priorities, those have felt very minimal to me. And it seems like what's so surprising to me is, for instance, in other post-viral and other diseases, there's a spectrum, such a wide spectrum of what people believe the priorities are, what they think the, the disease is, what they think the condition is. I am so surprised by how unified the long COVID community is in terms of what our demands mm-hmm. are and what we believe, you know, is the the underlying, uh, you know, disease process. It's not a huge spectrum of, of, of beliefs at this point, and that to me is 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 so. Uh, it's like we're a giant ant organism where everybody's just in line, and every people there's not a lot of argument. There. I mean, there is small things, but everybody more or less is believing the same things, seeing the mm-hmm. same things, and understanding what the priorities are. You know, we need we need a public health warning. We need to track. Yeah these cases and we need treatment and we need support for these folks. A lot of people aren't qualifying for disability. If you can't right. walk in disability, what's going to happen? You need financial support. Nobody disagrees with any of that. And I think everybody more or less is agrees with those, you know, four tenets in terms of the disease process. We know this is uh, immune dysregulation, disag- immune dysregulation. This is very likely Uh, microvascular phenomena which cannot be measured with regular testing yale just came out and said you can't measure this without invasive testing this invasive Mm. testing is not Mm. common um and so everybody is more or less finding the same things coming to the same consensus and so i'm quite personally from my perspective amazed on the uh the uh um harmony within the community. I think some people who are maybe a little bit more in the weeds of the advocacy world would maybe have a slightly different perspective. But for my, someone who's a very active vocal patient, I I don't see a lot of the tension um, that maybe other folks and other, um, because I mean, long COVID patients are stepping into the world of both uh, the the disability community, as well as the post-viral community, which are very well-established communities. And we, and I have they have been fantastic allies and there has been great um, knowledge shared from both, uh, you know, medical history, uh, advocacy history that have really helped, I think, uh, this this moment. And I'm so, yeah, again, I'm surprised with the amount of harmony and how everybody Mm -hmm. to me, at least personally, feels like we're more or less on the same page, you know, my plus minus here and there, you know.
0: I just want to, you know, underline the points that you made there. So, what you're calling for, and and the community, long COVID community broadly, calling for uh, public health warning, tracking, research, and assistance. And I wanted to pick up the the last piece of that because throughout the pandemic, there has been, and not enough by my by my counting, but still. Um, direct public assistance for people um, early in the pandemic who were facing, um, you know, job loss or, you know, there, then there's been assistance for people with their student loans. I mean, there have been a number of ways that the government has responded financially. Again, I don't think it's been enough. Um, but this seems to be a hard one, um, this problem of getting disability. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Is this sort of also kind of a state by state thing. So if you're in California or Massachusetts, maybe you might do a little bit better with this than other states, or is this really a federal government issue?
1: I think that is a good question. I know, for instance, if you're in California, you're going to have a much easier time than if you're in Texas, right? Um, And, um, you know, right now, today there was a devastating, I just shared an article uh, in the Rolling Stone Times of just detailing folks who are now homeless, who were teachers who were bartenders uh, who have long COVID because they weren't able to get uh, disability. And um, from my understanding, um, th- there's barriers to short-term disability, and then there are massive barriers uh, to long-term disability. And I, it took me, somebody who was had a very supportive employer, great health insurance, great team of doctors, and, uh, I'd say was fairly, uh, neurologically, at least the first year, highly functioning. The first year, I, I had just devastating cardiorespiratory symptoms, but my neurological symptoms were fairly intact, which was, you know, not the case for, for, for most patients. It took me a, uh, a year and a half to get short term disability, uh, under those circumstances in California, the most generous state for short term disability. Um, and, uh, there is no, Federal program, to the best of my knowledge, uh, for this, um, and there it is acknowledged under the ADA right now, but it's all case by case, and it's just a disaster. I mean, the, the short term, dis- the, the disability system is set up for people with visible disability, right? Something you can easily measure, and we know with other folks who have had uh, similar conditions with uh, post viral situations, it takes them years to get on long-term disability if they ever get on it. And that is harrowing for somebody. Me, my short-term disability is going to run out, um, in, in, in the, in the coming months. And I have to figure out what do I do? Am I going to be well enough to go back a little bit to work? Or do I have to hire a lawyer and start figuring out how to do long-term disability? That's one of my biggest, uh, stressors right now is trying to figure that out. And at the rate of my current recovery, I, I, I'm not optimistic. And so assistance is a, a massive issue and I probably and arguably maybe the most immediate issue and need issue right along with 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 research um and and treatment. Um and so uh I can't imagine what it would be like if I you know was a gig worker working in Texas. Right. Um with severe neurological uh, uh, symptoms, where I'm ha- I can't under- for me with with I, on the more moderate side of neurological symptoms, reading instructions is the hardest thing. Hmm. Um, you know, you get me in front of a camera and I can kind of talk okay for a little bit as long as you know my lungs can handle. Uh, but trying to like write an email or read something new is so hard. So I can't imagine what it's like for people with with severe brain fog with severe cognitive deficits trying to navigate this already incredibly yeah. complex system that's not meant for them. And so we are seeing what's happening. People are becoming homeless. they're losing uh, their houses, they're going through their savings. their relationships are being ruined because of this they're, and they're well, they're losing their careers, their jobs uh, it, it's tragic just the the out, just outside of the physical experience of it having to go through all of this with again, no clear outlook on when it's going to change and when there's going to be light at the end of the tunnel for um, you know any relief.
0: Um, are you feeling okay? Can we go one more question? Or are we waiting? Uh... Yeah, yeah.
1: I got probably another good five ten minutes.
0: Okay. So um, something you said a moment ago, you know, really struck me. And about the people in your life who love you and and believe you, but still there's. This, this challenge, and I think this is you know true in chronic disease generally. Yeah. I think back, you know, as a child, my grandmother had a autoimmune disease, and 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 so she, you know, she was a very active person, she was an artist, brilliant cook, just a, one of the best people I've ever known in my life. But she had to sit down and some and rest, and she didn't talk about it much. But um, I just never understood it and i had i was a kid so i had no framework of understanding how to like offer sympathy but it's like what you were just describing i think if it was something visible so it's not that i didn't believe her but i just had yeah. no way to connect to it because it was like oh she's tired again well old older people get tired but it, you know it, there was a gulf of understanding there and it it makes me think about an article that virginia heffernan wrote not long ago in wired magazine and the headline i think was um why is it so hard to believe other people's pain and i guess i mean it's it's a question i have for you based on your experience now cuz i think you have a really unique vantage point on this but it's it kind of speaks to the human condition in 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 ways that that bother me but i think we need to talk about which is how can we how can i support you how can we learn to trust yeah no it's such a that's a really good question
1: and Um, it's something I've thought about multiple times throughout this process is there is an empathy deficit, you know, there, I think there's a lot of sympathy, but there's a real empathy deficit of just truly understanding when you're somebody who is most people in their life have never really been sick for longer than two to three days, maybe a week. And it's just like in your DNA, um, to like, well, you get sick, you're just going to get better. So I think unless you know you're somebody who's been um struck with an unfortunate illness maybe something like cancer or uh even a prolonged you know uh you know injury back injury or something like that um it's just innately so difficult to comprehend the concept of getting sick and not getting better and I think um it's something that's so confusing that people you know, at the sixth i think one of the hardest parts of this illness is being sick at the between the 2 month mark and like the 4 month mark cuz you you're 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 just going insane you're like this isn't how things work uh you know what's going on this doesn't make any sense nothing computes and um i think it's because it's so counterintuitive to the human experience to to not bounce back it's so counterintuitive to the narratives we hear in our lives uh our whole life it's so counterintuitive to what is i've come to understand a very um ableist society um where the way we the world our world is shaped is you got to once you can get knocked down you get up again and but to get knocked down and stay down that doesn't make sense you know some you're just not you know trying hard enough is, is our instinct. And we have to curb that instinct. um, If we become self-aware of, and we become sympathetic, but it still, I think becomes incredibly difficult to empathize until you really experience it. And so I don't know that I have a great answer to your question other than um, I think the more people tell their stories, the more people listen to them, the more people might be, um, you know, understanding, I don't know what it's like to go through ALS. I don't know what it's like to go through cancer therapy. I don't know what it's like to have MS, but when people share their stories, you know, I think to myself, Oh my God, I don't want that, you know? And I think the more long COVID patients tell their stories, hopefully we can start to build a more collective. um, uh, We can start to close that empathy deficit as, as a society um, however, I think the, the nature of this condition and the nature of this pandemic where people's personal experiences have been so, I think that's been part of the problem with the pandemic is people's personal experiences have been so range where my grandma got it. She's fine. But yeah, someone's random uncle got it now he's dead. And right. my friend who's used to run 20 miles a week is still sick two years later. Right. And so there's, the, it's such a, um, a the, I guess the the brutal randomness of it has it made it has made it even more difficult for folks to both uh digest what's going on and to trust you know folks what's going on are you sure this person just wasn't suffering from severe anxiety and just isn't coping with the pandemic very right. well I understand that you know I think that is like this doesn't make sense and what's going on with this guy um you know thankfully now we have unequivocal clear biomarkers, you know, long COVID patients aren't extracting, you know, they're only extracting 50% of their blood oxygen into in their vital organs where regular people are extracting 75%. Clear, clearly, there's something very wrong. I don't know that many long COVID patients feel that insecure about that part of it as they maybe did the first year or three months. Um, but I still feel like the nature of post-viral diseases, the nature of this pandemic is is made uh, the empathy deficit greater in under a environment where our worst instincts have been i think expressed and our our empathy deficit has even close to folks to folks dying you know we know there's 3000 people still dying every day and we've become numb to that and so um i think all i can really say is that's part of why i share my story i mean people have said oh you're so brave you know you're so for sharing your story. I'm like, I don't think of it like that. I think of it as one, I want to get better. And so I'm doing it for selfish reasons. And I feel like if I share my story, maybe people, it may draw some more urgency to the attention, might lead to more treatment so I can get out of this twilight zone. Um, but also it's just like, how are people not knowing about this? There's no way we can let people experience what I'm experiencing. So there is just a, an, an instinctual sense of urgency. We have to warn people about this hurricane that people are experiencing because this is just crazy. Um, so And I think as more people are sharing their experience, people are beginning to uh, digest it. But a lot of folks in the disability community, in the post-viral community are skeptical that Mm -hmm. people have the capability to fully understand and and overcome their ableist instincts. My perspective is is that we have ableist instincts, we also have instincts of fear and self-preservation. Mm-hmm. And I think if enough people hear about this, those instincts are going to kick in too. Um, and they're going to take it uh, more more seriously. And so if I had a perfect answer to your question, maybe we wouldn't be in the situation we are mm-hmm. in. But it is something I think about. It is something my family struggles with. Uh, it is something my friends, I think, struggle with, especially when they call me and I sound okay for five minutes. You know, they're mm-hmm. like, I'm oh, like, he's doing good. And they don't see me laying yeah. on the couch for the other 18 hours of the day um, it's the nature of chronic illness is difficult to to, to really understand uh, and I could go on and on about this but you struck a nerve there clearly and um, I that's why I, I encourage folks who are going through this to continue sharing their story the last thing I'll say just because it tr- triggered it is a lot of people have said like you know I, if this was as common as it is, um, I feel like I would just know more people with this. Mm. And I, I guess something I totally get too. What I don't think people understand is, peop- most people are not like me. They don't want the world to know right. every medical problem with them. They don't want to know. They they respect their privacy. I had a friend reach out recently. He's like, uh, I'm shocked to tell you this, but I just found out my uncle has been dealing with long COVID for a year, and he wants to connect with you. I had mm. no idea. Mm. Uh, I've, I've seen him a few times and I've talked to him multiple times and he, he didn't tell me until he read your story. And there's so much of that happening where people, there are people in people's lives who are experiencing long COVID, uh, but they're keeping it to themselves because they don't want either their employer to know, right. or they don't know how their friends and family are going to react, or they just don't feel comfortable sharing that part of their medical issue. We know people on a general basis under report their symptoms they don't over report their symptoms. everybody knows the story of their uncle or their dad who they have to finally drag into the emergency right,
0: right or right. finally
1: drag into the room. so why would we expect this to be that much different right and why would we expect people to be over reporting symptoms that's what i truly don't understand um and one of the main qualms i take with people who are critical about survey information um which has been a different point of topic about how common this is, yada yada yada. Um, so again, I do encourage folks to share their stories. So hopefully, we can bridge um, bridge the understanding.
0: I just want to remind everyone you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls live at seven PM Eastern Time weekdays. Although these days we're doing COVID calls kind of round the clock as we head up to the two year anniversary of the COVID calls project, March sixteenth. I want to thank my guest Charlie McCone for really powerful. Hour, uh, learned a lot from you, and um, I think your call um, for you know concrete action from the medical community and from government and from people just to increase their to close that empathy deficit at deficit as you said is a, is a powerful one. And um, I hope you're not on the couch for eighteen hours after this discussion. But it was a really it was a really powerful one, and I think it's going to help people. Thank you, Charlie, for coming on today.
1: Thank you, Scott. Again, I, I appreciate it. And I do think the more um, people like yourself draw attention to this within the conversation of COVID and the pandemic, the more we are going to create more urgency. And at a certain point, there's just going to be a tipping point. And we're going to have to, to figure this out. And it may not help everybody at that point, but it can help a lot of people. And it can improve the quality of life for a lot of people, I believe, at some point. The question to me now is: This going to be in a year, five years, or ten years? And we want that time frame to be as short as possible. And unfortunately, at the rate things are going, so many people are getting sick that I do feel like the the, um, the uh, this twilight zone is starting to become, as I said before, such a crowded place that it's becoming difficult to ignore.
0: Stay healthy, everyone, and we will see you next time on COVID calls. And thank you, Charlie. <music>